By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance. In today's episode, from London, my co-host Miles Nelligan will talk to Moody's analyst Cristiano Ventricelli in Milan about the outlook for digital finance in 2024. Miles, hello. Hi there, Danielle. Miles, what was your key takeaway from the conversation you had with Cristiano? Well, to put it as briefly as possible, blockchain networks are slowly getting more widely used and adopted. However, this technology and the new era of finance it brings also has a lot of hurdles to clear before it can become truly mainstream. Okay. Thanks, Miles. I am looking forward to hearing the longer version of that. But first, it's time for Fast Finance, where Moody's analysts give their credit views on topics in the news. Joining me now in New York is Moody's analyst Neil Epstein of the U.S. Funds and Asset Management team. Neil, welcome back. Hi, Danielle. It's good to be back. So, Neil, earlier this month, BlackRock announced its $12.5 billion acquisition of Global Infrastructure Partners, a firm with more than $100 billion in assets under management that makes primarily equity investments in private infrastructure assets worldwide. You've said that this tie-up is positive for BlackRock. What are the main reasons it's positive? Well, there are uh, reasons that are intrinsic to BlackRock and reasons that are intrinsic to the investment world at large. Um, so let's start with BlackRock. BlackRock is a very large uh, business, $10 trillion in assets under management, serving globally major investors with a full range of liquid and alternative investments. Uh, BlackRock already had an infrastructures business of $50 billion in scope and private uh, infrastructure assets. This business will triple that to $150 billion. By diversifying BlackRock's offerings, uh, enable BlackRock to provide more comprehensive investment services to its clients. Externally, in terms of what's taking place in the world at large, the investment world at large, infrastructure assets as an asset class are growing rapidly. And that's because uh, we're kind of at a uh, evolutionary point in terms of the infrastructure of economies involving, importantly, carbon transition, the move away from uh, carbon-based energy sources, um, digitization, the increasing use of, um, well, computers, and people, I think, have their eye on the, the AI revolution as a source of increased need for computer infrastructures. Um, other things like transport, which have just aged out in our in our world, um, airports and, and other sorts of things. So there's a lot of demand for uh, infrastructure assets and the renewal of infrastructure assets. And at the same time, BlackRock is eager to um, diversify what it can offer its clients at a very large scale. Okay. Thank you for that. And you know, I saw an interview with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink where he mentioned infrastructure assets make sense for BlackRock's client base because the assets are long duration, high coupon, and inflation protected. Um, I was wondering, you know, where does the inflation protection come in? 
to that equation? Um, inflation protection comes in mostly because of the scale of the assets and the duration of the kinds of contracts they enter into with the ultimate users of, of whatever these infrastructure assets are providing. So if you are creating an electrical utility and people are buying um, power from you over long periods of time, the revenues that utility project will earn are going to be rising with inflation. If you are doing something like, uh, I don't know, water purification or even an airport, uh, these are all things that have very long lives as assets and inevitably will uh, increase um, the pricing power in line with uh, pricing through the economy. And I should just add, incidentally, to your question that the reason this makes sense for BlackRock is because a lot of their clients are, are essentially retirement clients, whether they are uh, pension systems or individuals who are saving for retirement, they are looking for assets that have long-term stability and the potential to generate income. Uh, and so uh, these these assets marry well with the sort of liabilities that retirement investors have. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. And I can really see, I'm starting to get a picture of why this is uh, this really is a good match for BlackRock. What are the other main reasons it's positive for BlackRock, though? I mean, aside from expanding the scale of, it, of its infrastructure assets under management. BlackRock is a, is a manager of, of diverse investment types. And importantly, BlackRock has also been an important advisor and counselor to big investors who try to optimize the full range of their portfolios. Think of a sovereign wealth fund, think of the biggest pension funds globally. If you're managing tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, you want to allocate your assets in such a way that you are marrying the risk and return of your portfolio ultimately with the liabilities that you have undertaken. So again, thinking in terms of retirement, you may know that you need to be able to provide payments out over decades and decades. You want to have an efficient portfolio that manages risk. BlackRock is very good at doing that. It's done that since its inception. It's always been in the business of providing that kind of portfolio consulting or advisory service. And the asset management services uh, enable it to deliver the programs, if you will, uh, that its clients need. So having a new and important asset class that's increasingly demanded by investors for some of the reasons we just touched upon serves BlackRock well because it is able to provide a more complete service and a more complete set of solutions to its clients. So last question for me, what has Global Infrastructure Partners' track record been like since inception? Yeah, there are four vintages out. They're, they're raising a fifth now. Um, they've gotten larger over time uh, in terms of the, the uh, amount of invested capital. It takes a long time for these funds to mature, first to invest the money and then to hold the assets. In the case of private equity, you're often trying to find ways to um, increase efficiencies. And, and by the way, Global Invest Infrastructure Partners is strong capabilities in terms of operational ability and operational improvements. So over time, these funds will accrete value and eventually distribute value back to investors. The earliest vintages have doubled client monies. And uh, the, the later vintages are younger, so therefore uh, most of the value is still uh, 
in the funds growing and, and compounding, but um, the record has been pretty strong. Neil, thank you so much. And next up on Fast Finance is Moody's analyst Abhi Srivastava with the digital finance team. Abhi, hi and welcome. Hello, Daniel. Glad to be here. Abhi, earlier this month, the SEC authorized the listing and trading of spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds, or ETFs for short, in the U.S., Now, I believe there were already active ETFs that trade Bitcoin futures. What's the difference between those and a spot Bitcoin ETF? Well, the difference is in what they track and how. Uh, The spot Bitcoin ETFs buy and sell Bitcoins directly in the crypto marketplace and hold Bitcoins as the underlying asset. This means that the performance of a spot Bitcoin ETF should very closely mirror the performance of Bitcoin itself minus the fees and expenses. This is different from Bitcoin futures ETF, which don't directly hold or trade in Bitcoins. Instead, they try to indirectly mirror the movement of Bitcoin's price by investing in Bitcoin futures contracts. So in short, spot Bitcoin ETFs give investors direct exposure to the price of Bitcoin, while a futures Bitcoin ETF gives investors exposure to contracts betting on the future price of Bitcoin. I see. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. And what's your take on, you know, what this means, this development means for investors, for Bitcoin, and maybe for cryptocurrency more broadly? Again, to begin with, uh, like I mentioned earlier, these spot Bitcoin ETFs can be more efficient in tracking Bitcoin prices, that is, have lower tracking errors than the futures Bitcoin ETFs. Additionally, these ETFs open up a simpler option for institutional investors who want to diversify their portfolios and have exposure to Bitcoin without having them go through the challenges that come with the trading and custody of Bitcoins directly. The ETFs, due to their lower unit price, will also allow more retail investors to become part of the Bitcoin market. All of this will help expand investor base, increase the liquidity in the Bitcoin market, and can eventually lead to a better price discovery. Finally, I should add that the SEC's approval comes with certain safeguards, such as mandated disclosures by product providers and a requirement that the spot Bitcoin ETFs will be traded only on regulated security exchanges. This will help mitigate some of the risks that come with dealing with crypto products on decentralized exchanges. I see. So that's largely positive in those senses you talked about. What about implications for cryptocurrency more broadly? The green light from the SEC will likely lead to a broader inclusion of digital assets in mainstream portfolios, so that's also positive for cryptocurrencies more broadly. However, I want to be clear that there are also limits to any benefits to Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies more broadly from this SEC approval. Uh, The SEC has said in its approval uh, it does not constitute an endorsement of Bitcoin, which, you know, suggests that the regulator remains concerned about the various risks associated with cryptocurrencies, including price volatility. So one risk to watch out for is that if this approval draws a lot of smaller retail investors into cryptocurrency investing, those investors would need to be properly educated about the nature and the potential downsides of these investments. Abhi, thank you so much. And now I'll turn things over to Miles and Cristiano to talk about the 2024 outlook for digital finance. 
Thanks very much, Danielle and uh, Cristiano. Welcome. Thanks for joining. Hi. Hi, Miles. Uh, now, Cristiano, in this year's digital finance outlook, uh, you've said that digital finance is starting to gain traction, but that this is happening at a slow pace. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but first, maybe you could give listeners a quick explanation of what digital finance actually is. Sure, of course. Uh, well, in a broad sense, digital finance refers to the process of transforming uh, traditional financial services using new and emerging technologies. So this transformation is already happening through payment system, issuance platforms that we have seen in many times with digital bond issuances this year, and other transactions that are all powered by uh, distributed ledger technology, also known as DLT. Um, now, what is DLT? Well, DLT uh, can be described as a, uh, a collection of system recording transactions in multiple places almost simultaneously. So you can think about distributed ledgers as a kind of database with many copies um, located in different places. So there is no one holding a single copy. Um, probably the best known form of DLT is blockchain. And, and blockchain, you know, um, is a technology that underlies the commonly known cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, but it also has many other use cases. Okay, understood. So digital finance is based on this technology. Uh, let's call it blockchain to use the most familiar term for listeners. What is it that's been slowing down its adoption, Cristiano? So we can identify uh, four key hurdles to be sorted out before uh, digital finance gains wider adoption. And they are first, a lack of interoperability among different networks uh, or different blockchain systems. The second one is the lack of a reliable uh, digital cash option. And the third one is regulatory uncertainty and last but not least, uh, technology risk. Um, in 2024, in general, we expect a slow but steady progress in addressing all these challenges. Okay, well, let's look at each one of these challenges in turn. Um, first, what is interoperability and uh, what's being done about it? Well, interoperability means uh, the ability of different blockchain networks to communicate with each other. Um, networks, they need to be able to work together uh, in order to achieve enough scale and allow the blockchain system to unlock the efficiencies it is designed to bring on the table. Um, and here it's important to understand that there are two broad categories of blockchains. There are public blockchains, uh, which are accessible to anyone, and private blockchains, which are controlled by one or a few entities. These blockchains, private blockchains, require users to have authorization to gain access to the network. So one of the reasons why interoperability is so difficult is that it's extremely hard to safely integrate public networks like the Ethereum one, for instance, with private networks that may be controlled by individual entities. Okay, this is what's known as bridging the public-private divide. Yes, exactly. Now, are there solutions out there to address this interoperability problem and to, to bridge the public-private divide uh, and thereby help uh, blockchain networks achieve the scale that they're seeking? Yes, we are seeing uh, this is starting to happen. For instance, many institutions are creating custom solutions within what is uh, commonly known as the regulatory liability network, which is an environment in which experimentation with new forms of digital assets uh, is supervised by regulatory authorities that participate in the project. 
Okay, thanks for that, Cristiano. Uh, let's move on to your second point of resistance, uh, and that's the lack of digital cash options. Uh, oh, what's the issue there? Sure. We basically mean uh, there is not a widely available form of digital cash that can be used in this new uh, blockchain-powered finance in a safe and secure manner. Uh, we have stable coins, which are a form of cryptocurrency that is designed to maintain a stable value uh, based on a certain reference asset, such as the US dollar. However, we have seen stable coins uh, showing vulnerabilities during stress conditions, and we have seen their prices significantly deviating from their peg, uh, which is basically the value they should have based on their underlying assets. Um, also, stable coins are not regulated, not properly regulated by uh, all the jurisdictions in the world. There are some jurisdictions which uh, still lack a comprehensive regulatory framework of stable coins. Uh, what we are seeing is that digital finance transactions, especially from institutional counterparties, are being settled off-chain, which means out of the blockchain using traditional uh, banking channels and using fiat currencies instead of digital currencies. Okay, and, and I guess that would defeat the purpose of having a blockchain network to execute these transactions. What are the other options for digital cash that might address some of the current weaknesses in stablecoins? Sure. Well, we have identified two main digital cash, uh, which are tokenized bank deposits and certain bank digital currencies. Uh, tokenized bank deposits are a digital representation of traditional bank deposits, but on the blockchain. So um, those digital counterparties to traditional bank deposits, because they are tokenized, they are potentially transferable 24-7 and comparable with programmable solutions that could help automating their payment and settlement operations. Also, unlike uh, stable coins, tokenized bank deposits benefit from their issuers, namely banks, being subject to types and established regulatory requirements. Um, as far as central bank digital currencies, also known as CBDCs, they are exactly what they sound like. So they are a digital form of fiat currency issued by a central bank. They are extremely promising, and there are numerous projects testing them right now. Uh, notably, the Bank for International Settlements has initiated various, various uh, pilot projects uh, that explore the multifaceted application of CBDCs. Okay, so it sounds like there are a few other options for digital cash which may become more widely available in the next few years. Um, let's talk about regulation. Uh, you mentioned that this is also a hurdle for wider adoption of blockchain technology. Absolutely. The point is that institutional investors really need to feel confident that they can uh, access digital asset class uh, like tokenized funds without encountering significant legal, financial or reputational risks. So for that to happen, there needs to be a comprehensive regulation in place. Okay, and, and is that starting to happen? Yes, we are seeing um, a substantial evolution in digital asset regulatory frameworks in 2023. For instance, in the EU, we have seen two big pieces of regulation uh, coming into effect. The first one is the markets in crypto assets, also known as MICA regulation. And the second one is the DLT pilot regime. In UK, we have seen regulators proposing approaches to supervise fiat-backed stablecoins, issuers, and custodians as well. Um, also, the payment system used by stablecoins will also be subject to specific regulations. 
And these are just two examples, but we have already seen few countries implementing frameworks that cover issues of digital bonds and other tokenized assets. For instance, we have seen Switzerland, Germany, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, and Japan uh, being at the forefront of innovation in that sense. Uh, in 2023, we have seen other jurisdictions such as Hong Kong and Singapore uh, catching up and developing frameworks for the regulation of digital assets, as well as United Arab Emirates uh, that are pioneering new licensing regimes for digital assets. Okay, and what about the US, Cristiano? Uh, I believe it's a little bit further behind. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's not as advanced uh, as the EU and, and UK. I mean, Congress did advance some legislation in 2023, uh, there were multiple uh, digital asset bills passing in the House Financial Services Committee, but the lack of bipartisan support held this progress back on this front. We're almost at time, so I just wanted to get in one question about technology risk as the fourth hurdle blockchain networks have to overcome to become more widely adopted. Cristiano, are you mostly referring to cyber risk when you say technology risk? Yes, that's, uh, that's a big part of it. Uh, although you could say that interoperability is just one specific kind of technology risk. But if you want to try to link together different networks, of course, you introduce cyber risk because you're creating potential points of failure. And we have seen this manifesting in uh, high-profile hacks in decentralized finance, where the point of entry was a bridge linking different blockchains. I see. So the difficulties around increasing scale and also security seem to go together when it comes to blockchain networks. Yeah, that's exactly right. Cristiano and Miles, thank you so much for an insightful discussion. And thank you again to Neil and Abby. And a big thank you to all our listeners. If you're listening to this episode on your favorite podcast platform, please remember to follow or subscribe. And please tune in again soon for future episodes of Focus on Finance. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.